Section 3 of The Myths of the New World by Daniel J. Brinton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Myths of the New World. Chapter 1, Part 3. Besides this, of language there are two traits in the history of the red man without parallel in that of any other variety of our species which has achieved any notable progress in civilization the one is his isolation cut off time out of mind from the rest of the world he never underwent those crossings of blood and culture which so modified and on the whole promoted the growth of the old world nationalities in his own way he worked out his own destiny and what he won was his with a more than ordinary right of ownership. For all those old dreams of the advent of the ten lost tribes of Buddhist priests, of Welsh princes, or of Phoenician merchants on American soil, and their exerting a permanent influence, have been consigned to the dustbin by every unbiased student, and when we see such men as Mr. Schoolcraft and the Abbe E.C. Brasseur, essaying to resuscitate them we regretfully look upon it in the light of a literary anachronism the second trait is the entire absence of the herdsman's life with its softening associations throughout the continent there is not a single authentic instance of a pastoral tribe not one of an animal raised for its milk nor for the transportation of persons and very few for their flesh it was essentially a hunting race the most civilized nations looked to the chase for their chief supply of meat, and the courts of Cusco and Mexico enacted stringent game and forest laws, and at certain periods the whole population turned out for a general crusade against the denizens of the forest. In the most densely settled districts the conquerors found vast stretches of primitive woods. If we consider the life of a hunter, pitting his skill and strength against the marvelous instincts and quick perceptions of the brute, Training his senses to preternatural acuteness, but blunting his more tender feelings, his sole aim to shed blood and take life, dependent on luck for his food, exposed to deprivations, storms, and long wanderings, his chief diet, flesh, we may more readily comprehend that conspicuous disregard of human suffering, those sanguinary rites, that vindictive spirit, that inappeasable restlessness, which we so often find in the chronicles of ancient America. The law with reason objects to accepting a butcher as a juror on a trial for life. Here is a whole race of butchers. The one mollifying element was agriculture. On the altar of Mixcoatl, god of hunting, the Aztec priest tore the heart from the human victim and smeared with the spouting blood the snake that coiled its length around the idol. Flowers and fruits, yellow ears of maize and clusters of rich bananas decked the shrine of Sentiotl beneficent patroness of agriculture, and bloodless offerings alone were her appropriate dues. This shows how clear, even to the native mind, was the contrast between the two modes of subsistence. By substituting a sedentary for a wandering life, by supplying a fixed dependence for an uncertain contingency, and by admonishing man that in preservation, not in destruction, lies his most remunerative sphere of activity, we can hardly estimate too highly the wide distribution of the Zeer maize. This was their only cereal, 
and it was found in cultivation from the southern extremity of Chile to the 50th parallel of north latitude, beyond which limits the lower temperature renders it an uncertain crop. In their legends it is represented as the gift of the great spirit Chippeways, brought from the terrestrial paradise by the sacred animal Quiches, and symbolically the mother of the race Nahuas, and the material from which was moulded the first of men Quiches. As the races, so the great families of man, who speak dialects of the same tongue, are in a sense individuals bearing each its own physiognomy. When the whites first heard the uncouth gutturals of the Indians, they frequently proclaimed that hundreds of radically diverse languages invented, it was piously suggested, by the devil for the annoyance of missionaries, prevailed over the continent. Earnest students of such matters, Thater, Duponceau, Galatin, and Bushman have, however, demonstrated that nine-tenths of the area of America at its discovery were occupied by tribes using dialects traceable to ten or a dozen primitive stems. The names of these, their geographical position in the 16th century, and, so far as it is safe to do so, their individual character, I shall briefly mention. Fringing the shores of the northern ocean, from Mount St. Elias on the west to the Gulf of St. Lawrence on the east, rarely seen a hundred miles from the coast were the Eskimos. They were the connecting link between the races of the old and new worlds, in physical appearance and mental traits more allied to the former, but in language betraying their near kinship to the latter. An amphibious race, born fishermen in their buoyant skin kayaks, they brave fiercely the tempests, make long voyages, and merit the sobriquet bestowed upon them by von Bayer, the Phoenicians of the north. Contrary to what one might suppose, they are, amid their snows, a contented, light-hearted people, knowing no longing for a sunnier clime, given to song, music, and merry tales. They are cunning handicraftsmen to a degree, but withal wholly engulfed in a sensuous existence. The desperate struggle for life engrosses them, and their mythology is barren. South of them, extending in a broad band across the continent from Hudson's Bay to the Pacific, and almost to the Great Lakes below, is the Athapascan stock. Its affiliated tribes rove far north to the mouth of the Mackenzie River, and wandering still more widely in an opposite direction along both declivities of the Rocky Mountains, people portions of the coast of Oregon, south of the mouth of the Columbia, and spreading over the plains of New Mexico under the names of Apaches, Navajos, and Lipans, almost reach the tropics at the delta of the Rio Grande del Norte, and on the shores of the Gulf of California. No wonder they deserted their fatherland and forgot it altogether, for it is a very terra damnata, whose wretched inhabitants are cut off alike from the harvest of the sea and the harvest of the soil. The profitable culture of the maize does not extend beyond the fiftieth parallel of latitude, and less than seven degrees farther north the mean annual temperature everywhere east of the mountains sinks below the freezing point. Agriculture is impossible and the only chance of life lies in the uncertain fortunes of the chase and the penurious gifts of the arctic flora. The denizens of these wilds are abject, slovenly, hopelessly savage. At the bottom of the scale of humanity in North America, says Dr. Richardson, and their relatives who have wandered to the more genial climes of the South are as savage as they are, as perversely hostile to a sedentary life, as gross and narrow in their moral notions. This widespread stock, scattered over 45 degrees of latitude, 
covering thousands of square leagues, reaching from the Arctic Ocean to the confines of the empire of the Montezumas, presents in all its subdivisions the same mental physiognomy and linguistic peculiarities. Best known to us of all the Indians are the Algonquins and the Iroquois, who at the time of the discovery were the sole possessors of the region now embraced by Canada and the eastern United States, north of the 35th parallel. The latter, under the name of the five nations, Hurons, Tuscaroras, Susquehannocks, Nottoways, and others, occupied much of the soil from the St. Lawrence and Lake Ontario to the Roanoke and perhaps the Cherokees, whose homes were in the secluded vales of East Tennessee, were one of their early offshoots. They were a race of warriors, courageous, cruel, unimaginative, but of the rare political sagacity. They are more like the ancient Romans than Indians, and are leading figures in the colonial wars. The Algonquins surrounded them on every side, occupying the rest of the region mentioned, and running westward to the base of the Rocky Mountains, where one of their famous bands, the Blackfeet, still hunts over the valley of the Saskatchewan. They were more genial than the Iroquois, of milder manners and more vivid fancy, and were regarded by these with a curious mixture of respect and contempt. Some writer has connected this difference with their preference for the open prairie country, in contrast to the endless and sombre forests where were the homes of the Iroquois. Their history abounds in great men, whose ambitious plans were foiled by the levity of their allies and their want of persistence. They it was who, under King Philip, fought the Puritan fathers, who at the instigation of Pontiac doomed to death every white trespasser on their soil, who, led by Tecumseh and Black Hawk, gathered the clans of the forest and mountain for the last pitched battle of the races in the Mississippi Valley. To them belonged the mild-mannered Lenny Lenap, who little foreboded the hand of iron that grasped their own so softly under the elm tree of Shakamaxon, to them the restless Shawnee, the gypsy of the wilderness, the Chippeways of Lake Superior, and also to them the Indian girl Pocahontas, who in the legend averted from the head of the white man the blow which, rebounding, swept away her father and all his tribe. Between their southernmost outposts and the Gulf of Mexico were a number of clans mostly speaking the Muscogee tongue. Creeks, Choctaws, Chickasaws, and others, in later times summed up as Appalachian Indians, but by early writers sometimes referred to as the Empire of the Natchez. For tradition says that long ago this small tribe, whose home was in the big black country, was at the head of a loose confederation embracing most of the nations from the Atlantic coast quite into Texas, and adds that the expedition of the Soto severed its lax bonds and shook it irremediably into fragments. Whether this is worth our credence or not, the comparative civilization of the Natchez, and the analogy their language bears to that of the Myers of Yucatan, the builders of those ruined cities which Stephens and Catherwood have made so familiar to the world, attach to them a peculiar interest. North of the Arkansas River, on the right bank of the Mississippi, quiet to its source, stretching over to Lake Michigan at Green Bay, and up the valley of the Missouri, west to the mountains, resided the Dakotas an erratic folk, averse to agriculture, but daring hunters and bold warriors, tall and strong of body. Their religious notions have been carefully studied, 
and as they are remarkably primitive and transparent, they will often be referred to. The Sioux and the Winnebagoes are well-known branches of this family. We have seen that Dr. Richardson assigned to a portion of the Athapascas the lowest place among North American tribes, but there are some in New Mexico who might contest the sad distinction. The root diggers, Comanches, and others, members of the Snake or Shoshone family, scattered extensively northwest of Mexico. It has been said of a part of these that they are nearer the brutes than probably any other portion of the human race on the face of the globe. Their habits in some respects are more brutish than those of any brute, for there is no limit to man's moral descent or ascent, and the observer might well be excused for doubting whether such a stock ever had a history in the past or the possibility of one in the future. Yet these debased creatures speak a related dialect, and are beyond a doubt largely of the same blood as the famous Aztec race who founded the empire of Anahuac, and raised architectural monuments rivaling the most famous structures of the ancient world. This great family, whose language has been traced from Nicaragua to Vancouver Island, and whose bold intellects coloured all the civilization of the northern continent, was composed in that division of it found in New Spain chiefly of two bands, the Toltecs, whose traditions point to the mountain ranges of Guatemala as their ancient seat, and the Nahuas, who claim to have come at a later period from the northwest coast and together settled in and near the valley of Mexico. Outlying colonies on the shore of Lake Nicaragua and in the mountains of Verapaz rose to a civilization that rivaled that of the Montezumas, while others remained in utter barbarism in the far north. The Aztecs not only conquered a Maya colony and founded the empire of the Quiches in Central America, a complete body of whose mythology has been brought to light in late years, but seem to have made a marked imprint on the Mayas themselves. These possessed, as has already been said, the peninsula of Yucatan. There is some reason to suppose they came thither originally from the greater Antilles, and none to doubt but that of the Huastecas, who lived on the river Panuco, and the Natchez of Louisiana were offshoots from them. Their language is radically distinct from that of the Aztecs, but their calendar and a portion of their mythology are common property. They seem an ancient race of mild manners and considerable polish. No American nation offers a more promising field of study. Their stone temples still bear testimony to their uncommon skill in the arts. A trustworthy tradition dates the close of the Golden Age of Yucatan, a century anterior to its discovery by Europeans. Previously, it has been one kingdom under one ruler, and prolonged peace had fostered the growth of the fine arts, but when their capital, Mayapan, fell, internal dissensions ruined most of their cities. No connection whatever has been shown between the civilization of North and South America. In the latter continent, it was confined to two totally foreign tribes, the Muiscas, whose empire, called that of the Zaks, was in the neighborhood of Bogota, and the Peruvians, who in their two related divisions of Quichuas and Aymaras, extended their language and race along the highlands of the Cordilleras from the equator to the 30th degree of south latitude. Lake Titicaca seems to have been the cradle of their civilization, offering another example how inland seas and well-watered plains favor the change from a hunting to an agricultural life. These four nations, the Aztecs, the Mayas, the Muiscas, and the Peruvians, 
developed spontaneously and independently under the laws of human progress what civilization was found among the red race they owed nothing to asiatic or european teachers the incas it was long supposed spoke a language of their own and this had been thought evidence of foreign extraction but wilhelm von humboldt has shown conclusively that it was but a dialect of the common tongue of their country when columbus first touched the island of cuba he was regaled with horrible stories of one-eyed monsters who dwelt on the other islands but plundered indiscriminately on every hand these turned out to be the notorious caribs whose other name cannibals has descended as a common noun to our language expressive of one of their inhuman practices they had at that time seized many of the antilles and had gained a foothold on the coast of honduras and darien but pointed for their home to the mainland of south america this they possessed along the whole northern shore inland at least as far as the south bank of the amazon and west nearly to the cordilleras it is still an open question whether the tupis and guaranis who inhabit the vast regions between the amazon and the pampas of buenos aires are affined to them the traveller d'orbigny zealously maintains the affirmative and there is certainly some analogy of language but withal an inexplicable contrast of character the latter were and are in the main a peaceable inoffensive apathetic set dull and unambitious while the caribs won a terrible renown as bold warriors daring navigators skilful in handicrafts and their poisoned arrows cruel and disgusting habits and enterprise rendered them a terror and a byword for generations our information of the natives of the pampas patagonia and the land of fire is too vague to permit their positive identification with the araucanians of chile but there is much to render the view plausible certain physical peculiarities a common unconquerable love of freedom and a delight in war bring them together and at the same time place them both in strong contrast to their northern neighbors end of section 3 read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama